it might not feel like very much. Okay. You might only have $20 to put towards everything on that list uh, every single month initially, but building the habit right now, doing those things, putting some towards debt, some towards emergency funds, some towards investing over time, you'll be able to, you know, add more to those piles and that will keep uh, snowballing towards a greater uh, financial stability. Welcome to the Teacher Money Show, the podcast dedicated to helping teachers navigate your unique financial challenges and unlock your financial superpowers. I'm your host, Sean Morgan, a full-time teacher. That's right, I teach every day just like you, and personal financial coach. And I'm here to help every teacher, whether you're a seasoned teacher looking for fresh insights or a new educator navigating your first paycheck to have a richer wallet, classroom, and life. The contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice, and neither I nor my guests are engaged in the provision of legal, tax, or any other advice. You should not act upon this information without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Now, I'm super excited today because I get to talk to you one-on-one, and I'm super duper excited today because I got a message. Someone, one of my listeners, wanted to ask a question, and I can't wait to answer it. And this question comes from John. I'm in the midst of looking at my 457 options here at San Diego Unified, and I'm feeling restricted with just one option, Corbridge, formerly Valek. With our union, we recently got a raise, and I'm intent on investing it. But the 457 options look less than favorable. No Vanguard or Fidelity and other funds have expense ratios starting around 0.5% or higher. So the questions are, at some point, are the fees too high and it's not worth it? And what should be the attitude or strategy when the fund options in 457s are not very good? Any uh, thoughts about this would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, John. I appreciate you reaching out, John. I'll do my best to answer this question for you. And as I'm going to answer it, I just want to remind you that I am not your financial advisor. I do not know your entire situation. These are just some ideas for you to consider with the help of professional financial advice. I'm required to say that. Okay. My first thought for you is what other investment options do you have? So you're talking about the 457, which is a fantastic investment vehicle but can you invest it in a 403B that isn't horrible? You know, a lot of 403Bs are horrible. So don't just, you know, jump on that immediately. You need to double check that one as well. Or what about an HSA, a health savings account? Some of those have investment options. So do you have an HSA option? Is it investable? What are the, the options there? And you can also consider investing in a good old fashioned IRA. And an individual retirement account is individual which means that you get to decide where you invest it. You can open up an IRA with Vanguard. So if you want to start putting that money aside, now granted you have to jump through the hoop of I'm putting money in an IRA and then you get it in your refund and things like that. It doesn't immediately come out of your paycheck uh, the same way, but you still get the same benefits uh, of reducing your taxable income with a traditional or uh, paying for the taxes now, but then, you know, getting the, the uh, deferred or getting uh, no taxes when you pull out the funds later with a, an IRA, a, a Roth IRA, uh, you still get the same uh, benefits with an IRA. You just don't have it come immediately out of your paycheck, but it's the same thing, really. 
uh, you just can't contribute as much as well to an IRA. But if you don't like the options that you have, might as well start with an IRA. It, it's something else that you can do. Uh, so I wouldn't let your desire to invest in a 457 uh, control you. So 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 all of the the perks are are great uh, of a 457. Right, the, the perks are great of a 457. I wouldn't let the perk tail wag the investment dog. Does that make sense? Right. You, you don't let the, oh, I, I want my 457, which has this great, I can, you know, invest and then I can step away from my investment, my, my, my employer and, you know, draw those funds. That's the great perk of the 457. When you separate service, you, you can then get those funds penalty free. That's not a reason to invest in that if it is the worst option you have for investing. Uh, it's just a perk that happens to have. So all things equal, I would choose 457 over other options. But if you have a you know 2% expense ratio for a 457 and a 0.01% expense, expense ratio in your 403B, then definitely take the 403B option. So just th that's the thing to consider um, you know, when you're trying to determine whether or not to even use the 457 versus the other investment vehicles you have. Uh, it, it's just, it's our superpower, right? Teachers have options for investing. A lot of places have a 401k and that's it. You can invest in a 401k, nothing else. Uh, and then an IRA, because everyone can invest in an IRA. Um, but we have, uh, most of the time we have an HSA because of the way our, our uh, health ac accounts go. We automatically have a 403b by being a public employee. The majority of teachers also then have access to a 457 for being public employees. So there's there's lots of different things that you can invest in uh, with that money, the different vehicles you can invest in. Uh, so just keep that in mind as you're shopping it around. You don't have to use the 457. Now, with that being said, you ask at some point, are the fees too high and it's not worth it? And the answer is yes, <laughs> there is a point uh, at, at, at which that happens. And as a general rule of thumb, the closer you get to 1%, uh, I think that it becomes less worth it to invest. The, the 1% is, is my personal hard and fast cap. Like, yeah, if you're, if you have an expense ratio over 1%, forget about it, right? I'm not doing it. Just no way. Underneath that, it's more squishy, right? At what point do I say no, thanks? 0.5% isn't terrible. It's not amazing, right? It, with Vanguard, you can get much lower because they have, you know, down to 0.016%, which is an absurdly low expense ratio. Um, but you can't expect that everywhere. And you probably have a more, uh, you know, hands-on fund with a 0.5% expense ratio. Not always the better option, but, you know, if you're getting like a a target date fund that requires them to balance their portfolio over time. Uh, and then that's just going to take more work. Therefore they need a higher expense ratio. Uh, so 0.5% isn't awful. It's not great, but it's not awful. It's, it's average. I would be like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but what concerns me more is the company, right? I, I don't know much about the, the company. And I, when I looked at it, actually, they, they seemed pretty decent. But the company makes or breaks the expense ratio at, at this squishy level. 
right? You have to ask yourself, are they going to nickel and dime me with other fees, right? I had one company that I was investing with who just charged me a buck 50 a month just to invest with them. Like there, there was, there wasn't part of the expense ratio. It's just like, oh, you use us. That's a buck 50, right? And that just wasn't even in my original calculation. So you need to be aware of the, the random other fees that they may be charging. I'm not sure about this company. Uh, you're going to have to you know, dive in deep with your uh, HR to figure that out probably because companies don't necessarily share that information as publicly as or as easily accessible as uh, you can get it. And also surrender charges. Different companies will uh, charge you a fee to take your money somewhere else, which is absurd because it's your money. Um, and on their website, the for for uh, Corbridge, they they actually asked you if you were going to put money with them if the other company had that uh, surrender charge. So I would be inclined to think that they don't uh, because they're informing you of it. Usually, a company that has a surrender charge doesn't want you to know about it. Um, but not, once again, that's just a question to ask. You want to make sure that you're not going to have other expenses beyond just the 0.5%. That's the thing that's concerning. Uh, so the real takeaway for this is being invested for the long haul is more important than a 0.4 or a 0.5% expense ratio. There gets to a point where the expense ratio really matters above 1%. But if you're being like, well, I could get a slightly better expense ratio over here or over there, you're worrying about things that aren't going to uh, bear very much fruit in the long run. And if that's your excuse for not getting started investing, then you're really going to hurt yourself in the long run. So uh, just 0.5%. If everything else checks out and that's the best option you have, go with that. that that's what I would do. Um, but if you have other greater options, better options, right, then go there. You just need to make sure you're comparing apples to apples, right? If you have the same expense ratio, then you want the higher return on investment potential. If you have different return on investment potentials, then the expense ratio might be different. Or if uh, the risk factor is there, uh, it might be different. So you need to, to just consider the differences that could come up that could account for the differences in the expense ratio. But if the difference is, you know, 0.1%, uh, it's, you know, it's money that you're going to have to pay out, but it, it might not be that big of a deal over a, a full career. Uh, so... If you're going to go with the 457 option you have, 0.5%, not terrible. Just make sure the company is a good company and they're not going to charge you a bunch of other fees and that you don't have a better option. Because if you have another investment, investment vehicle you like more, like an IRA or 403B, then you can go that way. There you go, John. That's my uh, not as short as I was hoping answer to your question about your 457, but hopefully that helped. And if you have a question that you would like to ask, Go, you can always go to uh, speakpipe.com slash teacher money show and uh, ask me a question there. Or you can uh, send me an email. Um, or if you have a more in-depth question, uh, I'd love to have you on the show. You can go to teachermoneyshow.com slash guest, fill out the form, and I can have you on as a guest. And we can have a great conversation helping you with your uh, particular financial question.
All right. Today, we're going to be talking about protecting yourself from financial tidal waves. Now, what do I mean by a financial tidal wave? Well, a tidal wave is something that's very sudden, right? It's something that just happens. People are on the beach, and then the next minute, they're being sucked away and blown apart and, you know, pulled out by a tidal wave. It's, it's pretty, pretty crazy stuff if you've ever um, seen images of these tsunamis, these tidal waves, right? These um, the, the, usually the water sucks back away from the uh, ocean, uh, from the beach, and then comes flying onto the beach. It's very, very devastating, horrible natural disaster. And these sudden unexpected things happen all the time in finances. So you need to be prepared for them. There are three steps you can take to protect yourself from a financial tsunami. You can build a one-month emergency fund, then slowly save three to six months of expenses, then get necessary insurance. We're going to talk about each of those. So tsunamis. These are massively destructive waves. You can't run from them. If a tsunami is coming and you are on the beach, you're in trouble. There, there's just nothing that you can do to prepare for that once it's coming. But you can prepare now. Okay. So I like to think about this way. Have you ever been to the beach and like the waves are coming in and you're like, oh yeah. And you like giggle and run away from the wave. And then it goes out and you run back over and you giggle and run away from the wave again. That's kind of everyday life. You know, you, you, you try not to get wet. You have to, you run out, you run away, you run out, you run away. And that's the, the regular, you know, stuff. But if you're trying not to get wet when a tsunami is coming, you need to have more preparation in place. You need to have a shelter. You need to have a wall. You need to have something uh, defending you against that onslaught of water or you will get wet. Uh, another way you can think about this is if you know the, the story of the wise man and the foolish man, right? The wise man built his house upon a rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The one on the rock survived. The one on the sand did not. We are trying to build our house on a rock. We're trying to build our financial house on a rock. So that way, when the waves come, we will not be swept out. Now, there, there is a, uh, a fantastic story. Um, after the, the large tsunami that hit Japan, uh, I guess it's probably a decade ago now. Uh, time goes faster once you get older, I guess. But uh, they... They had this huge tsunami. Tons of, of homes were destroyed. It's very, very sad. And as they were handling this, um, this tsunami, they had a bunch of refugees up high on the mountain, and somebody stumbled upon a rock on the side of the mountain. Hadn't been noticed or looked at or read in hundreds of years. And it simply said, remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point all of the houses below that point were swept away. And all the houses above that point were fine. So when we're looking at what we need to do to protect ourselves from these financial tsunamis, I recommend that we look towards old traditional basic wisdom. There's no flashy new thing that's going to protect us better than the traditional wisdom. The reason why wisdom is traditional is because it has traditionally worked. So 
the first thing that anyone who is trying to tell you how to protect yourself will tell you is build a one month emergency fund. Setbacks are only scary if you're not ready for them. If you're ready, they're, they're just kind of annoying. Okay. Uh, when a financial problem hits you and you are ready, it's like, well, darn. But if you're not ready, it's the end of the world. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, this episode's coming out in December, 2023, just watched It's a Wonderful Life, you know, and he gets hit by this huge financial crisis of his business entire fund of $8,000, you know, it's a long time ago, his business's entire fund of $8,000 gets misplaced and it's the end of the world. He, he nearly commits suicide as a result. And that's because he didn't have that defense against that huge calamity um, and if he did it, it would have been a terrible setback but he would have survived and, and luckily he does so i recommend you watch the movie but the point is that having those things in place in the case of a setback you're much more likely to be successful so you don't want to have to worry about what um what you're going to do when you have an emergency if you have an emergency fund. So instead of wondering, what do I do first? What, what's the first step? If you haven't done anything financial, start by getting an emergency fund. One month of expenses is an adequate starting place. Now, what do I mean by expenses? Why don't I just say one month of income? Well, you spend a certain amount and you make a certain amount. I am hoping that the amount that you make is more than the amount that you spend. If not, working on that, right? That's why we're doing our budgeting stuff. But uh, your expenses are, are what really you have to be able to cover in the event of an emergency. So having one month where, let's say you just couldn't work for a whole month, if you could pay for all of your basic expenses, then you've weathered that emergency. But if you can't, then you're in trouble, right? So that's why it's one month of expenses. That's the place to start. And that doesn't mean one month of all your, you know, bills and all of your, you know, crazy shopping habits and, you know, going out partying or, or whatever it is you spend your money on, right? It, one month expenses of the basic needs is really where you, you start with this. So uh, if you have that, um, you have a crisis hit, you use that money to pay for it. And then before you do anything else, you just pay yourself back out of that fund. So instead of like, oh no, I have a crisis, I'm going to put it on the credit card, and then you have to pay back the credit card with interest, you can pay yourself back. And bonus tip, if you pay yourself back with interest, your emergency fund will continue to grow over time. Now, once you've hit that one month of expenses, you can start uh, taking a bit of a, uh, of a breather, right? Having that one month of expenses is the baseline. And you can slowly build to three to six months of expenses. Now, the order of this depends on your debt. If you have a large amount of debt, I would recommend that you pay off debt as a more of a priority over getting a larger emergency fund, just because you're going to get an automatic return on your investment for paying off debt. And you will need a smaller emergency fund if you don't have to pay debt service every single month. Um, but you know, continue to slowly build your emergency fund, chip away at your debt, and try to build up three to six months of expenses in your emergency fund. Now that is a lot of money, right? Six months, let's say you make 
$60,000 a year and you spend, you know, 25 in six months, that's all that it's going to take you longer than six months to build up $25,000 worth of, of um, expenses in that account uh, it, because you have to survive. So that that's going to be a long process. That's why I said slowly build it up. Don't get discouraged as you are trying to build up that, that amount. I'm still working on it myself. Okay. It's, it's a long process to make sure you have that defense, that major defense. And if something huge happens, let's say you have a major surgery and you can't work, you know, for a lar large uh, window of time, having that three to six months on hand makes that uh, a setback, but not a calamity. Um, and let's say you, you're trying to build this up. Okay. And you get hit by something. Well, you just pay out of it and then you start over again. It's just, you're always trying to accumulate that, uh, that amount of money you have on hand to be ready for an emergency. So how do you do it? Well, you save as much as you can from your regular paycheck, but knowing that that's not going to get you there very fast, you can use a side hustle to try and, and pad your fund a little bit. Uh, you can use like a tax return to jumpstart it, you know, give it a little boost instead of, you know, blowing it on a cruise or a, I don't know, whatever it is you're going to flow that money on. Cause let's be honest, we tend to blow our tax, uh, tax return money. Um, but while you're doing this, the, there's one more important thing as you're slowly building your emergency fund, as you're paying down debt, don't forget to also start doing a little bit of investing, right? Investing, it, it takes time and you can never get that time back. So unless you are investing, you know, right from the very beginning, You'll never be able to capture the the power of the time component of investing, so that's that's why those things all to go together. You've had your your one month emergency fund, then you start slowly building your three to six months emergency fund, and pay off debt, and also do a little bit of investing. It might not feel like very much, okay? You might only have twenty dollars to put towards everything on that list uh, every single month initially, but building the habit right now, doing those things, putting some towards debt, some towards emergency funds, some towards investing. Over time, you'll be able to, you know, add more to those piles and that will keep uh, snowballing towards uh, a, a greater uh, financial stability. Okay, three to six months of, of emergency fund is, is being built over time. Hopefully you get there sooner rather than later. Uh, but the next step is to protect yourself more immediately three to six months takes a long time to build up so while you're trying to build up you know a big cash cushion it's important that you have insurance now there's there's a balance between the insurance you need and the affordable insurance right you don't want to have too much insurance but you definitely don't want to have too little um so just make sure that you are insuring the things that really really matter and that you're protected in the event of a, a disaster, right? So uh, property insurance, you don't need to have, you know, $100,000 more than your property's value on your property insurance. Get as much as you need, not more, not less, because you don't want to be stuck with something if you have too little. So just make sure you have the right amount of property insurance. Health insurance, that's usually provided through our employer. Uh, just make sure that you are aware of you know, how much you uh, owe if uh, a calamity happens, right? There's an out-of-pocket maximum. 
that is something to be considered in that three to six month emergency fund. If your out-of-pocket maximum is $12,000, you might have to pay $12,000 before they give you anything or not anything, but before they give you, you know, you know, the rest of your medical costs covered. So that is a thing to consider in that emergency fund. And that might have you lean towards putting even more money in your emergency fund, depending on your health insurance. Uh, life insurance, uh, if you have dependents, it's a good idea to have life insurance. So that way they're protected if something happens to you. Once again, don't get too much, right? If, if you're only making $50,000 a year, you do not need a $5 million life insurance policy. You, you don't need to make it so that your family can, you know, live high on the hog for the rest of their life. They just need to be able to get by while they're getting their feet under them. That's what life insurance is for. Uh, but, you know, if you're making $100,000 a year, giving them a $100,000 life insurance policy only gives them, you know, one year to figure things out. So that's something to consider. Uh, and also there's just, there's whole life and there's term life. Whole life insurance is generally more expensive and less useful than term life insurance. There are reasons to have whole life insurance policies. Uh, usually they do not apply. So just keep that in mind. If someone's trying to sell you whole life insurance, you need to ask yourself why. And if they don't have reasons other than just telling you, oh, it's it's a it's a tax benefit. Yeah, no. Okay. It, Invest in term life insurance and invest the difference and you'll you'll get a much better benefit. Um, that's just my two cents on, on that. Disability. Usually there's disability insurance through your employer. Uh, if you think you need more for some reason, you can look into that. Long-term care. Uh, I generally think long-term care insurance is a little expensive. Uh, I mean, the sooner you start, of course, the, the better it's going to be for you. But uh, long-term care insurance is one of the more, most costly that there is. I personally think that if you're worried about, you know, the end of your life, long-term care, you need to look at your pension and how much that's going to be and compare that to the cost of long-term care and see if, you know, there's how much of a discrepancy that is, because if there isn't much of a discrepancy, then as long as you're investing for your future and you have that pension, uh, you'll be able to cover your long-term care costs with that pension. And really, you just need to determine with insurance, what you do is you do is called a cost-benefit analysis. You decide what's the best-case scenario. You know, is this money you know, going to a good cause in the best-case scenario, which is I don't use it. So how much is it going to cost me then? Worst-case scenario, if everything goes wrong, how much is it going to save me then? And then try and find the Goldilocks zone on the best, you know, insurance uh, that way. That's how uh, you can figure out the costs and benefits of insurance. So to protect yourself from a financial tsunami, start with the basics. Just get some money in the bank. Many, many, many people could not cover a $1,000 emergency. A lot of people can't even cover a $400 emergency. They don't have any money on hand. They don't have anything in the bank. That's going to protect you from a financial tsunami. Once you have a solid, you know, month in in the bank then you can start growing from there right you can go to your three to six months paying down debt starting to invest these are the things that you can do over over a longer you know period of time and once again as you have an emergency come up pull it out of your emergency fund re, uh, refund yourself and then keep going from there 
And then to protect yourself from even larger things, since your three to six months aren't going to help you in the event of a major health crisis or something like that, make sure you have the proper insurance for all the things that are absolutely necessary. These three steps are going to really help you uh, be financially stable. And when you feel financially stable, then you can start moving towards uh, the goals of financial freedom and uh, financial independence and so forth. So if you have any uh, questions about, you know, how to withstand a financial tidal wave, uh, please reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to answer your specific question, whether it's just a, a quick voicemail or uh, if it's a uh, a full-on uh, interview, we can have a, a great coaching conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Once again, to do that, go to uh, teachermoneyshow.com slash guest. And uh, if you have... Uh, if you want to, you know, see the, the show notes for this show, uh, look at the transcript or anything like that, you can go to teachermoneyshow.com slash podcast. You'll find all of our show notes there. And I've had a great conversation with you today, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. If you'd like to come on the podcast for coaching, to share an expert opinion, or just to talk about a topic you think is relevant, I'd love to talk to you. Just fill out the form at teachermoneyshow.com slash guest. I look forward to talking with you.